Welcome to the To Your Bible, Custom Design To Your Bible Reading Plan and Weekly Podcast by myself, Chris Case, pastor of Resonate Church. I'm here with Sarah Pasquale, our executive director. Hey there. So let's spend some time in Job and John. And uh, we pick up uh, right after sort of the, the opening two chapters where everything in Job's life comes to a crash. Um, and we get Job speak here for the first time. And Job sort of, as you would expect from someone that's basically lost everything in their life uh, in some ways, that Job curses the day he is born. No, he doesn't curse God. And that actually becomes the advice of others. But um, Job right now, he's sort of like in this opinion of like, life is just not worth living. He laments his existence. It's this this bitter lamentation um, that that he just speaks, this cry of suffering, which is legitimate. Like, this is what you would expect in this moment. This is really heavy and it's going to continue to be so, but just pause for a moment and be grateful that we follow the kind of God who includes laments like these in his inspired scripture what a gift there is for us that within our belief system within our religious literature there is a place to feel this sort of grief in the midst of suffering and then we kind of move into three rounds or sort of debates between a friend who accuses job and job defending himself and uh, once again the word for satan from the opening text is like this word for an accuser and so i think job is going to be accused in some ways over some stuff that he will defend himself against. Mm-hmm. And so um, the the opening Eliphaz kind of response here, it's like, well, who, who that was innocent ever perish or where were the upright cut off? And there's implication. He doesn't outright say it, but that the kids maybe weren't as good as you thought you were Job. And like, maybe they weren't that innocent and, and God's simply enforcing justice. He doesn't get as explicit. Another friend will get very much more explicit on that. Um, and it's important note like i think job functions as a bit of a, a counter narrative to the book of proverbs not to not because they're contradictory but as we said in proverbs like it, these are principles and not promises they're not not ironclad promises they're 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 principles and so when proverbs 12 will say something like no ill befalls the righteous but the wicked are filled with trouble i think the book of job sort of shows up being like hold on i've got a i've got a story to tell um that that talks about how these probably are more principles and promises. And, and we're going to see even the advice of these friends. Some of these are like, some of the advice they give are like legitimate proverbial things that um, can be like good, reasonable coffee cup verses. Like uh, one of the friends, uh, Eliphaz here will say, behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the almighty, which is true. Like, okay, that's, that's not a, that's a truism. But once again, like, in this context with Job, who we know is upright, who we know is sinless, who will defend himself about being sinless, this is terrible advice, right? In, in the context, they are taking the position where they're like, I know what's going on here. And they start speaking for God, which is, which as we will develop, like becomes a problem. Like not only for them speaking for God, just their approach to someone who is suffering. So Eliphaz here is really arguing that Job is not righteous before God, and that is why he is suffering. And it's kind of like a functional belief in karma. Though it is difficult to discern, we do at times see people suffering as a form of discipline from God. But this should be a caution to all of us to be careful with our words when someone is suffering and to be careful with our assumptions around the reason behind their suffering. Yeah, and, and Job's defense of himself even points out, just like, look, you lack kindness. Like, And he says, anyone who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. It's pretty strong accusation. Like, you're withholding kindness to me. It's like, it's like you don't even fear the Lord. And he's pointing out, like you come at me with unkind words and, and, and he, he even goes like, look, if teach me and I'll be so, like, if there's something I need to know about, 
like where I've gone astray, teach me. But, but I, I don't know. I don't see this as you see this. And if you're saying I'm suffering because for God's trying to reprove me, like I, I don't see it this way right now. Um, yeah. And it continues to just expand my view of how God views righteousness before him. And it's still something I'm kind of working through. But the fact that Job could stay faithful to God and express these feelings of grief and frustration or even saying he's hopeless is pretty amazing to me. Yeah. Uh, and then Job, once again, is just struggling uh, and lamenting. Mm-hmm. Says, Therefore, uh, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And he's like, God, I'm suffering for no reason. I don't understand it. It's very psalmish at times. So yeah. we certainly have psalms that reflect that same sort of position. Yeah. And then Bildad, uh, another friend, shows up to speak. And Bildad's up to the where Eliphaz was a little softer. Bildad's like, uh, does God not pervert justice uh, or does God pervert justice or does the almighty pervert the right? If your children have sinned against him, like he has delivered them in the hand of his transgressors. So build out it's like reciprocity or rep- reciprocity uh, of God here. It's like, look, good things happen to good things. Bad things happen to bad people. Your children must have deserved it. It's just like cruel advice to Job in this moment. I think we see Job's friends really wrestling on their own with what to do with Job's situation and circumstances. Job seems righteous, but is suffering. And so they have no context for what to do that. And so they continue to push or force that Job has done something wrong because all they can do is associate Job's suffering with God's rejection of him. They have no other frame of reference. And we see this in our world too. We probably do it ourselves and don't even realize it at times. Yeah. Uh, and, and earlier in chapter six, one of uh, Job said to one of his friends, like, you see my calamity and are uh, afraid. And, and I think the afraid position is sort of this possible worry that for them, that the same thing might happen to them. And they're trying to make sense of this. And, and maybe they're afraid to like, look, like, this must have happened because you screwed something up. Like, God doesn't work this way. Like, as if they're, they're sort of saying, like, they have to make sense that suffering may come even to them if they try to walk blameless. Like there's, there's a worry, there's an afraidness of, um, that, that this doesn't fit the mold of cause and effect in their lives. And so, um, yeah. And so, uh, Job, uh, replies to Bildad after his terrible advice and Job is recognizing, look, God's the source of wisdom. Like he, he starts directing it, which will become sort of a central piece of this. And, and Job's still struggling. Like, he's like, I, I'm blameless. Like, I, I don't know what to tell you, Bildad. I, but I regard not myself. I loathe my life. Like, he's like, I'm blameless, but this is terrible. And I'm so sad and I don't know what to do with it. Um, and we have to remember in the intro, Job's like still insists that he's blameless. We don't see God ever say that Job's to blame in this moment. Job knows all of the amazing and powerful things God has done and can do, but he just feels like God has passed him by. And then he cries out, there is no arbiter between us. And this should draw us to uh, us all needing an arbiter. We all need a mediator, which of course we've been given through Christ. Yeah. And Job kind of continues to plea. He says the same thing again. I'm blameless. I regard not myself. I loathe my life. And, and Job, Job will go on to say like, God, look, if you have something against me, like, let me know it. Like this, it would be helpful for me, but I I think I'm still innocent. If I'm guilty, like, whoa, whoa to me. Like I I need to know that. But if I'm innocent, like this is just really sad. Mm -hmm. He's like, so why, why even bring me out of the womb? Like, ah, would would I have died before my eyes had seen this? And so he's still struggling with the question. He never curses God. He almost curses more his birth. Yeah, he, he knows he's God's handiwork. He knows he was made by God, but really doesn't quite understand why at this point. And then Zophar shows up, uh, and, um, and and he's sort of hearing all that Job's saying, and basically he's like, 
can someone not stop Job from mocking God? Like, can someone bring some shame upon Job that he keeps mocking, even though Job isn't mocking at all? He's simply complaining. He fears God is blameless, but he's complaining. He's struggling to understand. But Zophar here um, blames Job and picks up a weapon of shame. He's like, look, it's your iniquity. Put your put away your iniquity. Um, and then finally you won't fear Job. Like that's when things will get better. And, um, but once again, this isn't true. Like, what do we, he's blameless. He's upright. Like there, there's no iniquity for him to put away. So, so far, once again, like another friend who shows up is just wrong in the context. He just really thinks that Job doesn't get it. And so tries to be a little bit more forceful to convince Job, um, that Job needs to repent and believes that Job has brought this suffering on himself. And I hate that he believes that, but I also get it. I think that I do it to people. But when I do that, I often lack perspective. We are all accountable and responsible for our own sin, but the suffering that we come under is a result many times, not all the time, but many times of generations of brokenness and wounding. And so when you see someone who you feel like is suffering around you, even to maybe sufferings that they brought upon themselves, approach that with compassion and empathy and not accusations. Yeah. And the Job's response, he kind of starts with like, look, you guys are a bunch of know-it-alls and all the stuff that you think you know, all this wisdom you think you're bringing to the table, it's just going to die with you. And, and he even points out, like, I have understanding as well as you. Like, I'm not a inferior to you. Like I, I, I know these same proverbs, these same maxims, all these things too. Like, uh, like who, who doesn't know the things that you guys are saying? And sure. I think Joy's pointing out some of the things you guys are saying is true. Like we know these things, but, but he's saying, but I'm just and blameless. And my friends laugh at me. And I, these things that you're trying to bring to the table are not true in this moment. And this is, we're still at the beginning of, of the book of Job here, but we see that Job still has an accurate understanding of God and his character. Job never asks if God could have prevented his suffering because he knows that God could have. Yeah. And then I think we get to Job start identifying some of the problems of what the, what the friends are saying. They say, he says, "Will you speak falsely for God, speak deceitfully for mm-hmm. him. Are you defending God with lies? Like he's starting to point out like, look, like you're trying to speak for God in this moment, but you're speaking inaccurately for God. Like, Yes, God is all good, all powerful, all knowing. He is the source of wisdom. But bad things happen. And and I don't know if we get to defend God. Like that's above our pay grade. Um like I may make mistakes. I might speak inaccurately for God. And so he's pointing that out and you're bringing maxims and proverbs like in, in your ash like you're bringing all these things and they're not helpful. Like there's these platitudes, but the platitudes may not apply in this moment. Yeah. So Job is mourning his friends of speaking for God when they don't know actually what God is doing. And this is a really scary warning. How often do we hear ourselves sort of speak for God about complicated situations, whether uh, the state of our nation or specific people or circumstances? Do we truly know? Job is saying that it's better to be righteous and suffer than misrepresent God. And let's take that to heart. Yep. Um, and then Job waxes poetically some more about the futility of life that it appears to him that death for, for humans is just finally death. He has a longing that that's not true, that there's resurrection, but he feels very um, futile in his, sort of his response here. Yeah, it feels like Ecclesiastes or it feels like Psalm 90. I felt like it connected to a lot of different parts of scripture there. And Eliphaz comes along again um, and, and sort of says, but like you were doing away with the fear of God. and, and But yet, like we, we are reminded multiple times in this text that Job does seem to fear God. Um, that's not the problem on the table. We're reminded multiple times. Um, he just doesn't have this 
fake piety. And like he's legitimately wrestling with God's sovereignty and questioning, but he still fears God. But Eliphaz is wrong again. And Eliphaz is like, like, why are you being so emotional about all this? Like Job quit shaking your fist to God. Like just get on with your life. And that's just not advice for someone that's suffering. Yeah. I mean, they get into this kind of battle of wisdom, arguing that they all have wisdom. And if you're arguing with someone about your wisdom, you're probably not very wise. That's <laughs> yeah. my guess. Yeah. Uh, and then Job just throws it back at them. He's like, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters. Are you all like, shall windy words have an end or what provoked you that you answer? It's like, you guys are terrible at the comforting thing. And why do you guys keep talking? And Job reminds them, like, if I was in your place, I would throw accusations and advice like you, like I would do the same thing you guys are doing. Like if I, I or I could do the same thing you guys are doing, but I wouldn't do that. He says like, I would comfort you with my words. I would do these kind of things. And, and then by chapter 16 at the end, like, um, and Eugene Peterson, he kind of rewords some of it, um, but, but points out, uh, I'll just read his rewording and says, uh, don't cover up the wrong done to me. Like, don't muffle my cry. There must be someone in heaven who knows the truth about me in highest heaven, some attorney that can clear my name, my champion, my friend. And while I'm weeping my eyes out before God, I appeal to the one who represents mortals before God as a neighbor stands up for a neighbor. And that's Tara pointing out, like we, we need this advocate. We need the one who's going to stand in the gap. And Job sitting there going like, God's doing his thing. I'm down here suffering and I need someone to fill the gap to, to help me understand that that feels like my champion, my friend in the, in, in before God in heaven. And so, um, he's, he's longing for that. Yeah. Job's friends just don't get it. They have not suffered like Job. And so they are approaching it from a sort of logical or clinical perspective rather than the grief and sorrow of one who has suffered. So as we comfort those who are suffering, be careful about who you emulate and who you look like when you bring comfort. And Job recognizes everyone's been mocking him. And he's even pointed out that the wisdom so far, he says like, but you come on again, all of you, and I shall not find a wise man amongst you. He's like, you guys can keep bringing your advice, but I am not finding any wisdom in what you guys are saying and he kind of left us with with this good question where he's wrestling with like so what is my hope and do i just go into the grave and death goes with me and like it's death my only hope in this life and he's kind of left there yeah so john uh we'll jump into john and we pick up uh the very end of um there was this whole chapter where jesus fed this crowd uh and then he has this whole debate around uh the, the bread the manna and how he's really the manna and that people need to eat his body and they all sort of um don't understand any of the disciples this is where we pick up this week the disciples had that hard time with the teaching too they say this teaching is really hard um but I, I think it's not because they think that jesus might be cannibalistic they just understand what jesus is really calling them to that that they are to to find in jesus life and eternal life and um and that's what jesus is inviting them into they're not by obedience to all, not by willpower not by um, that it's faith in this messiah walking with this messiah and they don't understand it completely but they know it's hard and they're ready to admit look jesus we're not going to go anywhere else like you are the you have the words to eternal life mm-hmm. where else what do we go yeah but it means also with this words of eternal life that the call to follow is too hard for some and this is a good warning to us we need to be prepared that there will be a time when more and more people will turn away from following jesus and you need to be prepared to answer the same question do you want to go as well our risk of falling away is so much greater when we either don't consider it or we are convinced we will never because our faith is too strong. So ask God for the grace to hold fast to following him, no matter what the cost. And then we find out one of the three major festivals is happening, this Feast of Booths. Uh, and Jesus' brothers want him to go down there and celebrate. And, and they're sort of like, look, you can influence a whole lot of people. But Jesus is like, look, the, the, 
time's not quite right yet, but you guys go ahead. But then we find out Jesus ends up going down there anyways, which is good. It's obedience to what they're called to do for the festival. So he goes down there, he starts teaching. Um, and people don't understand. They're, they're like, look, this, who is like, he didn't go to any of our schools. He didn't, he's not gone. He hasn't gone through the, the, school of Hillel or Shammai or whatever the, the formal school are at this time. Like, how does he teach in this way? How does he have this authority and this wisdom? And then Jesus points out like, look, like I'm never going to talk about that. Let, let's talk about the fact you guys are still mad at me from what happened on the Sabbath and you guys obey the law of Moses and, and, and do it even to circumcise on the Sabbath. Like you, you circumcise on the Sabbath because you're saying we are obeying the law of Moses and do that on the Sabbath. Well, I'm telling you, I'm being obedient to the law of Sabbath. Like that involves healing and restoration. That's what, that's what the law also calls us to. I'm not breaking the law. I'm fulfilling the law, including that on the Sabbath. We see this gospel that Jesus continues to proclaim as being entirely offensive to those who want to control and manage salvation through works. Yeah. Uh, and then there's debate about where Jesus comes from. Mm-hmm. And in some ways they're like, this, this guy, the Messiah is supposed to have this miraculous origin. And they're like, they're probably like, is this, this is that bastard child of Mary. Like this isn't the Messiah. And Jesus is like, you guys don't even know where I really come from. And so um, it's, it's a, a conversation on missing the point. Yeah. And the officers try to come to arrest him, but Jesus is like, where I'm going, you guys can't go, which is great because there's some funny reactions where people are like, are you going to the diaspora? Like, where are you going that we can't go? And they just don't understand, which is right. I mean, they, they would have no context to understand exactly what Jesus is talking about, at least yet. Yeah. And you keep in mind that John is writing this after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so he understands the context of it now, which is why he's including it in here. But it makes sense that they would have been confused back then. Yep. And then we get to these talk about living water. Now, this is where some of the history is like helpful to know just sort of what is going on, particularly during the week of, of the festival of, of booths or tabernacles. And, and so uh, there were all sorts of parts of the ceremony for that week. Um, and every day, um, the, the, the main priest would get a, 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 a jug and fill it with water from the pool of Siloam, go up to the altar and pour it out. And on the last day, there was sort of this major festival tied into this water ceremony. And he would go down, uh, get this water. Everybody would be gathered around the foot of the steps of the temple. Um, he would bring that jar of water up. Uh, he would circle uh, the altar seven times and he would pour it out. Everybody would wave their palm fronds and yell, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna. And they would be this giant celebration with this water. And the water was meant to represent not just the, the 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 rock that followed them in their time of wilderness, which is all what that festival is all about, is their time in wilderness, this walk, rock that watered and, and gave them water and life, but but not only that, but the start of the harvest. And so so imagine like and, and this is a little bit extra biblical, the timing and stuff like this, but like this is the final day of the festival, as John tells us. And so um, this priest would be carrying this water up. This is the major water festival. It's the last day of the whole week. Everybody's gathered in this place to, to, to have this sort of ceremony to remember how in their, in their wandering in the desert, in their thirst, that God provided this water for them. And then Jesus yells out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And so he's just connecting the dots mm-hmm. in his probably shouting of like, look, like we celebrated that, that, that God provided water in the desert. And I am here in this moment when we celebrate that very thing to tell you that I am the one who ultimately quenches your thirst in, in more the supernatural spiritual way. And, and so just how poignant that the timing of this happens when Jesus is teaching this. Right. Yeah, that's great. 
Um, and so Jesus doing the things that he does just causes that much more debate and that much more people to, to question what's going on. They're wondering why Jesus is from Nazareth when the, when the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So apparently word hadn't gone around yet. Um, and these Pharisees, the sort of religious right at the time, the temple priests who are the political power, they both want Jesus dead. But, but I find it fascinating how they treat the crowds or speak of the crowds. Like we've seen Jesus, especially in other gospel writers, speak of the crowds as like sheep without a shepherd. He has this empathy at times for the crowds. And they kind of speak of the crowds. It's like fools who just don't understand what they're talking about and a bunch of idiots. Like that's sort of the, 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 um, the, the sort of position that it sounds like they're kind of taking, there's no empathy at all. Uh, and at the end of that, Nicodemus kind of stands up. It's like, shouldn't we judge this guy based upon God's word? Like what are we, what criteria are we using to, to sort of bring down Jesus? And so Nicodemus is showing once again, like he doesn't fit in the mold of some of these others. And so, yeah. You know, they, they're getting caught up in the little things and they're missing the big picture of what Jesus is saying. And I think it's a good warning or a caution to us that in our attempts to be faithful Christians, not to miss the big picture by focusing on little rules and regulations. Yeah. Uh, and then this woman caught in adultery. And so um, there's some interesting context too. I, I wouldn't put like my, I wouldn't, it wouldn't be a hill to die on, but there's some things I think that that can be brought out. So like I said, the Feast of Booze is happening. And last night would have been like the biggest part of the festival. It would have been the major party. And so there'd be all sorts of festivities. So who knows if um, there might've been a little too much drinking, a little too much things that might've happened that this woman and the man that who's surprisingly not on the scene uh, got caught in their, in their moment. But at the same time, you have these religious leaders who are just trying to trap Jesus. That's what they're trying to do um, by bringing out this woman. She's just being used by the religious leaders for a teaching moment. Um, But these leaders have been teaching related to the Feast of Tabernacles about water and all this kind of stuff for, for seven days. And one of those texts that they would have taught multiple times that week is Jeremiah seventeen thirteen, which is, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. And so Jesus, in this whole interaction, writes in the dust. It's like, it doesn't exist a lot in scripture. It's here and in Jeremiah's text. And and yet it would have been something that would have used that week. It would have been text that they would have read that week. And I wonder if Jesus writing in this dust is very much sort of condemning these leaders at this moment, as if to say, like, you are the guys who are turning away from forsaking the Lord. Like you are turning away from the spring of living water. And there's all sorts of ways, not only in their rejection of Jesus, but like, even in the fact that like, how they did this was just not okay. Mm. That like, they're not following the Torah at all. Like in how they are bringing the man's not on the scene. There's all sorts of problems to what they're doing. And this is the second time we see Jesus call a woman who could be in some questionable circumstances out of her sin. But notice that the, that the man she committed adultery with was not even there. Nope. And so he elevates and honors the woman in this passage and also exhorts her to live out uh, her God-created identity through not sinning any longer while also um, refuting or arguing against some of these leaders. Yeah. Rebuking uh, Yeah, her. true. Um and then this moment, once again, this Feast of Tabernacles, this, this whole week, um, one, one of the things that, that that week was a celebration of is certainly they were wandering in the desert, but one of the things they would do is talk about the, the 
pillar of smoke by day and a pillar of fire by night that led them around, that lit the direction, that, that helped them know what to do and where to go. And every night they would light these giant candelabras on the temple court. And, and so Jesus, once again, might be picking up on this imagery in this context to, to be there as they're lighting these things and be like, look, I am the light of the world. Now, I am the pillar that leads the entire world, that leads you to the true promised land that is like he is the true light. And there becomes this debate then about Jesus's authority. And he reminds them, like, you guys don't get this. Like, the witness is my word. The witness is my my, my father. Um, and, and I think Jesus is even in this context around light and those who can see and, and stumbling in darkness is kind of pointing out, like, you guys are still stumbling in darkness. You need God's light to see things as they really are um, and, and using that in this moment. There's so much. This is following one of those major themes throughout all of Scripture, from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and this theme of light, and it does really center around Jesus as being the light of the world. You know, God first created light, and the Lord led Israel by the uh, light of the fire in the Exodus, and we see how we are salt and light now, and uh, this theme of light is really important for us to understand that light may very well exist to show us Christ. Yeah, and and this whole interaction and this teaching on light, like there are some that uh, there was a crowd that suddenly started following Jesus, but then Jesus got and turns to that crowd and and kind of corrects them or at least helps um, kind of parse out what what they may be actually why they they might be following him, and then he reminds them right away. It's like, look, like I know you guys want freedom. But with sin, like there's bondage. Like, I don't know if you guys really do want to be set free. Like, and there's an invitation from Jesus here, but um, he seems to point out like the difference between the slavery that sin is offering and the freedom that he is offering. Yeah, and that's another biblical theme. I don't keep mean to keep mentioning this, but the John just hits on so many biblical themes, whether water or light. And then we talk about slavery and freedom. And so we are either free in God's truth or we are enslaved to sin, just like we saw back in Exodus. We see it all over the place. Yeah, and, and then there's a longer talk about Abraham. And a reminder that Abraham heard God, he believed, he walked out his faith. And, and then he's pointing out, like, your fathers weren't like that. Like, you say Abraham's your father, but your fathers are probably more like the, the people who rejected the prophets. Like God spoke and then everybody just went ahead and killed them. And and Jesus here starts putting them, I think, in that camp. And, and then he starts making it even more sort of greater or cosmic in some ways by being like, not only were they your father, like you're a real father. It's actually the devil himself. And he's the liar who would work against the very word of God, the very movement of God. Like that's what you guys are doing. You're not like Abraham. You're like those who kill the prophets. You're, you are listening to the lies of, of Satan and not actually doing what Abraham did. Yeah, for those who are not in Christ, they have a father, but he is the father of lies. And yet through Christ, we are offered adoption into the kingdom of God, who's our father of truth. And, and Jesus reminds people, look, if you follow me, like ultimately, like you won't see death, or at least the true form of death. And, and they start pointing out, it's like, well, Abraham died, and the prophets died. Like, are you greater than them? And like, they couldn't defeat death. And Jesus is like, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm greater than Abraham. And they're like, but I, we don't understand. Abraham died a long time ago. And you're not that like, uh, like, what, what are you talking about? And Jesus is like, well, before Abraham even was, I am. And if there's a, there, there are multiple places where you can easily point to where Jesus definitely makes some God claims, but he just uses essentially the name of God right here right. to say like, I, like before Abraham was like, I like I'm Yahweh. <laughs> 
Right. Like I am the one who has always been, who is, and who will be to come. And so, um, and at this point, like obviously they get what Jesus is trying to say because their response to that is they are ready to kill him. Like that was enough for them. They've been looking for this political military king-like figure, this, this other kind of Messiah, but Jesus is making these kind of claims and, and they've had enough of it. And, and if Jesus is just a regular man, like this is blasphemy, even if he was the political Messiah that they expected, this would be blasphemy. And they are not having any of it because they, they just don't understand what Jesus is and what he's calling uh, his people to. Yeah. And I mean, just step back for a second and have a little bit of empathy or compassion for some of these religious leaders. You know, they had it all wrong, but I get it. I get they were so um, fastidious and passionate about uh, following their beliefs correctly. And Jesus is kind of throwing it all on its head right now. Of course, he's clarifying it and we know what it means, but I just really kind of feel for him and why they were upset as well. Yeah, of course. Psalm 19. So I love Psalm 19. I guess I should say that about all the Bible. But uh, this you can is like a, sections better. Than yeah, those. I mean, this one always stirs me every time I read it. Um, it's just a meditation on the perfection of God through His creation and through His Word, and we can trust God because He doesn't change and He's good. And then this prayer, "Keep me from presumptuous sins," is such a great prayer to pray. Yeah, uh, Spurgeon says the study of God's it's the study of God's two great books, both nature and scripture in this text that we reflect on scripture and we reflect on nature. Um, and, and it's heavily used in a lot of liturgies, but like even even a few great one-liners, like the law of the Lord is perfect. And so um, the, the psalmist certainly has this affinity uh, towards what God has said. It. Yeah, it's a good way to remember it. And what it's about is remember that Psalm 119 is the long one about God's law and Psalm 19 is about God's law. Yeah. Proverbs 18. Yeah, a lot about language. Fools only have opinions to give. They start fights with their words. Uh, and death and life are in the power of the tongue. Yeah, and in and, and this section, I mean, certainly wisdom is personified multiple times, but the section feels very heavily mm. personified that like she's going into the streets and she's just calling out for people to develop wisdom and, 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 and beckoning people to come. Uh, and once wisdom, once again, it's better than all riches. And then Psalm 88, yeah, I feel like this is a psalm that Job could have prayed, that David could have prayed, that Paul could have prayed, and that Christ could have prayed. Yeah, it's a pretty dark psalm. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the whole psalm literally ends. It doesn't get the refrain that some of the, the sort of lament type psalms sometimes get where the, the author is suddenly like, but I'll still hope one day or I still will trust in the Lord. It just ends with the word darkness. And, and so it just has this sort of like dark tone to it. And that's okay. And like... That's sort of where we're at in Job. Like, there's no resolution at this moment. The author wrote it without sort of coming to his resolution. It's okay. Maybe he did eventually or she did eventually, but that's where we're at. All right, next week, what should we look for? So in the Old Testament, I'm just learning a lot from watching Job's friends interact with Job. So pay attention to where they're getting it wrong. What are they saying right, but in the wrong context? And how are they putting their own framework and worldview on the situation instead of submitting to God's ways? And in the New Testament, I just encourage you to keep following this theme of light. You're going to keep seeing it in John. And John speaks in kind of repetitive or cyclical ways. And so just because it comes up once doesn't mean you should forget about it. Keep following it and see what John's trying to do there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I will echo what kind of what Sarah says, but we have to remember like 
what we know of Job in his introduction. Job is blameless, he is upright, and all of his suffering he is without sin. So as these friends keep giving advice, like, yeah, what do, what do we make of these friends' advice? And then um, John will start to deal with the conversation of death and resurrection. And we'll spend a little bit of a, lo- a longer time, a couple chapters, starting to flesh a little bit of this out with the Lazarus story. But then he starts teaching other stuff right after that. And notice the juxtaposition of sort of the Lazarus story and then some conversation around death and, and, and dying and, and what comes right after that. All right. Thanks, y'all. Thank you. Thank you.